2022. Time for a fresh start. It's been a rough couple of years, hasn't it? I've had some some big losses. Had people that we love pass on. We've had ailments. We've had people lose jobs. We've had all kinds of things that have happened over 2020 and 2021. But we got a fresh start. It's 2022. We can we can turn the page. Um, at the beginning of every new year, many people tend to take inventory of their lives from the year before. They contrast their successes and their failures. Every person I know wants to build on what they succeeded on, and they want to correct the mistakes that they made. They don't want to follow in the same footsteps that they passed through the first time around. They want to they want to succeed and overcome the failures. After taking inventory of the events of the previous year, what do people usually do coming into January 1st of a new year? They go to make resolutions. By a show of hands, how many of you actually make New Year's resolutions? Wow, that is a very small amount. I'm very surprised. Well, good for you. For those that do, it's okay. For those that don't, it's okay. I must say that I don't really make resolutions for the year to come. I do take inventory, though. I think about my failures. I plan to correct those failures. I plan to build on my successes. But I really don't make resolutions. I commit to one thing every year. One thing. I commit to growing closer in my walk with Jesus Christ by not only adding to spiritual disciplines that I practiced the year before, but digging into the Word of God on a daily basis. I can't tell you how many times, most of you that have heard me up here at any time or talked to me in the hallways or anywhere else, know how much I love the Word of God. I really do. Like, it's one of my favorite things to do is just sit and read the, read the Word of God. See, being a mailman, I have an advantage over a lot of people. If you, sit at a, if you have a desk job and you're sitting there and you're working on your computer, it's kind of hard to listen to the Word of God. It's definitely hard to stop and read it because you don't have time, right? But I get like eight, nine, sometimes ten hours a day where I'm just walking, delivering mail. So I can take my phone and I can just listen to the Word of God. And it's amazing. It's amazing what it does for me. It makes me a better man definitely gives me a better attitude <laughs> it definitely just helps me to talk to people and it keeps me in the mindset of being close to Jesus so I make a big deal out of studying the word of God I make a big deal out of studying the word of God I believe that everyone should be in their word daily daily it's medication it's food for the soul it revives your spirit it's so important to spend time in the Word. And like I said before, a lot of people get intimidated by the idea that I'm going to read the Bible in a year. But it's not about, it's not about getting the check marks. The check marks are cool because you know you did it. But it's about what God does through you as He works the Word through you. The more you read it, the more you swallow it, the more you give it to your soul and your spirit, the difference that it makes in your life is just astronomical. 
So that's one of my biggest things, is I know that if I grow in wisdom and understanding of the Word, that God is going to use that to change my life. He's going to make, use His Holy Spirit to work through me to, to be the man that God's called me to be. So before I even get into anything, I implore you, get in the Word of God. Don't let it just sit on a shelf or in your phone app and never open it. The life of a follower of Christ is made evident by the disciplines that he or she adheres to. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. There's no question about that. But our salvation needs to be worked out daily. Our walk with God is kind of like a muscle. What happens if you don't build your muscles? If you don't stretch? If you don't... You don't necessarily have to lift weights. But if you don't work out your muscles, what happens? They get weak, right? You can't just walk around and do nothing with your muscles and expect to be strong. They begin to hurt. <laughs> they begin to show weakness. Our faith, our walk with God is just like that muscle. And muscles never leave your body. They're still there. So our faith, if it's authentic, it doesn't leave. Jesus is always with us. When we're walking with Jesus, he stays with us. But if we're not working out our salvation with fear and trembling like Paul tells us, our faith weakens. It doesn't go away. Again, muscles don't go away. They're still there. Your faith is still there, but it, it weakens if you don't work it out. So if you don't build up your muscles, they get weak. If you don't walk with Jesus and practice spiritual disciplines, your faith will weaken. When we do practice spiritual disciplines, and when I say spiritual disciplines, I'm talking about prayer, study, fasting, fellowship with other believers. These things are vital to the life of a Christian. If you're an authentic Christian and you're skipping out on these, you're weakening your faith. You're letting your faith go by the wayside. You need all these things in practice to be able to build that faith so that you don't become stagnant. Our faith must be used and stretched for it to grow. Faith is a gift from God, but we must use that gift for it to be, an effect, be effective in our lives. So our text for today is going to be Psalm chapter 1. With the time we have together, I'd like to present to you a contrast from the psalmist between the blessed life of a devout follower of Christ and the cursed folly of the wicked man. So if you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, because as I've, you've heard me say before, if I say something, you want to check it, right? So I hope you have a Bible with you. If you do, open up to Psalm chapter 1. Just six little verses. Here we go. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that, wind, that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. 
For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 is aptly placed as it sets the tone for the entire book of Psalms. The first part of the first verse is our key to understanding all of the Psalms. It says, blessed is the man. In Hebrew, the word that's translated blessed means either happy or content. This phrase encourages people to live for God's glory. You're blessed if you. See, blessings come from God, but for them to be applied, they're based on conditions usually. The blessing doesn't leave, which I'll get into in just a second, but for it to be effective, it needs to be applied. Don't, doesn't every person in here, every person you know, wish to be happy in life? I don't know anybody that doesn't want to be happy. I want to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. But happiness is based on circumstances. We find one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy is eternal. When we have Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we have joy all the time. That fruit should be evident in our life. But happiness is fleeting. It comes and it goes. It's like the wind and the waves. Here and there, gone tomorrow. Happiness is based on circumstances. But for the life of a Christian, happiness should be based on the fact that we're blessed in Jesus Christ. That happiness should flow from that blessing. Following this prescription laid out by the psalmist will help you recognize your blessing from God through Jesus. Despite the fact that the simple definition of blessed is happy or content, I must point out that once again our blessings are not based on feelings. At times, the blessed one will absolutely feel unhappy. Has anybody felt unhappy recently? I think that most of us would probably raise our hand at some point or another. Over the past couple weeks, we've felt some type of unhappiness. A lot of us feel the weight of a lost loved one around the holidays. You know, I, can, I think of my mother who, every year at Thanksgiving, she thinks of the loss of her mother. Every year... Around September now, she thinks of the loss of my brother. So I just see people when I think of how they've lost loved ones and different events point to that unhappiness. All types of circumstances in life can bring unhappiness. However, even when we are unhappy, our blessing remains. The blessed man will, be, will remain blessed despite his negative feelings or adverse conditions. Let me say that again. The blessed man will remain blessed despite his negative feelings or adverse conditions. Just because we don't feel blessed at times does not remove our blessing. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. It shares many common features to the book of Proverbs and to several other psalms that would be considered wisdom psalms. Let's see if that helps, Caleb. It gives us understanding of the blessedness of godliness and encourages the godly to pursue the way of God over and above the way of the world. 
I guess my face is fatter than Greg's, guys. Sorry. It defines what the Blessed One does not do as well as what the Blessed One does. Psalm 1 defines what the Blessed One does not do as well as what the Blessed One should do. Now, the structure of Psalm 1 is what's referred to as a chiasm, and I think I've, I've mentioned this before, and it's kind of one of my favorite literary ways. Um, a chiasm is a device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. So we see this all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. We see chiasm over and over and over again. Uh, I actually think um, in Daniel, there's a, or Ecclesiastes, I'm sorry, there's a very good one about the cord of three strands is not easily broken. And it's just talking about friendship and walking with others and walking with God. And it's, it's just a cool way to present something. And that's what we have here. We have a chiasm. So it gives this type of mirror effect. Now here in this passage in Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 give us the discriminating way of the godly. Verses 3 through 5 offer us a contrast between the future of the godly and the future of the wicked. And it wraps up in verse 6 by giving us the discriminating way of God. So to help us get clarity for this, I want to read Psalm 1 one more time, if that's okay. So I'm going to read Psalm 1 again, because it's so many verses, it's rough. Verse 1, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff, that the wind blows away, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's just love the word of God. I could, I could read that like 17 times as I'm standing up here, but I won't. Note the first contrast that we find in verses 1 and 2. The blessed man has three things that he will not do and one thing that he delights in and puts into practice. Let's first take a deeper look into the three things that a godly man will not do. There is a way that he will not walk, a path he will not stand in, and a seat he will not sit in. One way to understand this verse is to understand that it speaks of thinking behaving and belonging the righteous man and the ungodly man are different in how they think how they behave and to whom they belong so number one a blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked every person I know when they need advice seeks counsel everyone when he when we don't have an answer for some decision that we need to make, we ask others for advice. Would everybody agree with that? We usually don't just wing it. I love to hear what other people have to say. It gives me clarity. It gives me a chance to contrast what one person says over another. So it's natural to ask for advice. Who we ask, however, depends on whether we actually know what we want to do before we even ask. Let me give you an example. If you have a heart, your heart set on buying a car and you know that you want this particular car, do you go and ask the most wise counselor you know or 
do you go ask one of your buddies if it's a good idea to buy this car? Well, I guess it depends on whether you really want that car or not, huh? Because if you do want that car, the first thing you're going to do is go ask your buddies, hey, is this a good idea? Yeah, man, go do it. That's the first thing you do. You go buy the car. But if you really want to know if it's a wise decision, you go to somebody, an elder. You go to somebody who you trust, a trusted advisor. You don't just wing it with what your buddy says because you know what your buddy's going to say. He's going to say whatever you want him to say because he's a yes man. Do, people, do any of you have yes men or women in your life? Well, if you do, stop asking them questions because they're not going to give you the right answer. Every once in a while, they might get one right. But for the most part, they just want to appease you, and that's not good. Help those yes men and women become, maybe not men and women, at least. Who you choose will tell if you're seeking wise counsel or foolish counsel. Asking the financial advisor or trusted mentor says that you want a wise answer to help make a wise and educated decision. Asking your best bud says that you want someone to say yes, regardless of the possible impact that decision may, have, may take in your life. In 1 Kings 12, we read about Rehoboam. <laughs> That's funny. Ben and I were just talking about that a couple weeks ago. Um, he was made king after his father, King Solomon, died. And... Upon becoming king, the people came to him and said, Hey, listen, your father levied hard taxes on us. He put a weight on us that was much too heavy. Lower that and we will serve you. So he says, Come back in a few days and I'll give you my answer. So Rehoboam calls his father's counselors, the elder, elder wise people, excuse me, that he could actually lean on to follow in good, wise footsteps. Remember what it says about Solomon. He was the wisest man that ever lived. So Solomon knew, don't ask the yes men, ask the guys who are going to tell you the truth, the people who are going to be hard and give you the hard answer. And Rehoboam, and they, so when he asked them, they said, you need to lower the taxes. You need to take this weight off the people. It's too hard. Then if you do, they will serve you. And Rehoboam says, hmm, nah, I really don't like that answer. That's not good enough. So then guess who he calls? He calls his group of yes men, his buddies that he grew up with, and he says, hey, you guys, what should I do? Lay it on thick. Hammer them with more taxes. Hammer them with more weight. And you know what happens? Rehoboam, the people come back, and he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay the hammer down on you, and you're going to deal with it. And you know what they did? They rebelled. And ten tribes, the ten tribes split from the other two tribes and Israel became two kingdoms. Just as was prophesied in the time of King Solomon. So Rehoboam got to keep two little tribes and Jeroboam, son of Nebat, took over the ten tribes to the north. And the, the kingdom was split from then on. So he chose the yes men over the elderly wise council. Now, I'm not saying that you have to go to elderly people necessarily. You just have to go to wise people. You have to go to people that are in the Word of God, that have answers based on what the Word of God says, not based on what their own hearts say, because we know that the Bible says that our hearts are deceitful above all things, and who can understand them? So we have to be wise in who we choose to listen to and who we choose not to listen to. 
A blessed man will not listen to ungodly counsel. A blessed man knows how to discern the difference between godly counsel and wicked counsel. A blessed man thinks before he acts. Number two, a blessed man does not stand in the way of the path of sinners. Sinners have a certain path that they stand on. Picture yourself at the playground when you were a child. If you look around, what do you see? You see different little clicks, don't you? You guys remember that when you were kids? Seeing the little clicks everywhere you look? You've got the, the jocks that like were playing football or they were playing tetherball or they were playing soccer or whatever. You've got the, the cute girls playing on the swing set. Guys, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. So you have the girls on the swing set doing their thing, talking in their own little groups. Then you've got the knuckleheads playing on the monkey bars, you know, the things that they don't have anymore at playgrounds, falling down, pushing people off of them, just goofing off on the jungle gym. It's so much fun. And then you have this small circle off to the side, and they're the troublemakers, you know, where Jimmy was. He was in that group. Sorry, Jim. You've got the troublemakers. They wanted, and then if you wanted to be considered cool, guess what you had to do? You had to go to the troublemakers, and then you had to go do something dumb. They would always make you do something dumb. I don't know why that is, it's just how you fit in. You had to do something really stupid. And then you would try to do it, and if you succeeded, hey, they'd bring you in. But if you failed, they would laugh at you while you got in trouble, and they didn't get in any trouble, even though it was their idea, and they put you up to it. you would find yourself either in detention or even worse, you'd be in the principal's office because of something stupid you did because you just wanted to be that cool kid with the, with the sinful troublemakers. You did what they did. These kids represent the sinners in my little analogy. The blessed man stays out of their path. The, the blessed man who seeks wise counsel doesn't stand in the way of the mockers. He doesn't stand on that path. He avoids those people. Not to avoid them to not have conversations with them because who did Jesus say he came to save? He came to save, he came to seek and save the sinners, right? He didn't come for people who needed who didn't need a doctor. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. So we do interact with those people. Don't leave them sitting there in the in the dirt and mire. What are you doing? You talk to them, but you don't join in with what they're doing you avoid what they're doing like the plague because that's what a blessed man does he doesn't stand in the way of the sinner he definitely doesn't follow in their footsteps this path that the sinners stand on is that broad path that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7 in verses 13 and 14 Jesus says to enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And only, But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. The blessed man rests in the promise of Psalm 1611 where David says, You have made or will make known to me the presence, or I'm sorry, the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. God has made his path known to each and every one of us, to every blessed person. The blessed man finds joy in God's presence. 
The blessed man chooses to rest in God's presence instead of standing in the path of sinners. And finally, the blessed man does not sit in the seat of mockers. Mockers love to sit and criticize Christians or anybody who's doing it right. A righteous man refuses to sit in that seat. Have you ever been mocked for putting your faith into practice? All mockers have the same MO. They ask rhetorical and annoying questions. Like, why do you waste your time reading the Bible? It's just a book. Why do you even pray? Is God really listening to you? Why are you so weird? They mock with the same tired phrases. Christians are so weird. Science says the Bible is just a book of fairy tales. Do you really believe that a man could be swallowed by a fish and live? I mean, these are some, some that I've heard. They think, that's so dumb. So I could spend quite some time mocking proud mockers. When, but that's what God does. He says, he mocks proud mockers. So I don't need to. But that's, that's what happens. When Jesus was dying on the cross, what were the people in the crowd doing? They're mocking him. If you're the son of God, get down from that cross. Save yourself. They laughed at him, ridiculed him, spit on him. But in his amazing love and grace, you know what he did? He prayed that God would forgive even those people. How many times have you forgiven somebody who's mocked you, made a fool of your faith, made you, made you feel bad because you trust in Jesus and you follow him? How easy is it to forgive those people? But Jesus would never sit in the seat of those who mock his followers, nor should any one of us. If somebody's mocking a fellow believer, you have the right to stand up for them. Ask them why. Say, what purpose does it serve for you to mock my God? Challenge them. And then let the Holy Spirit convict them blessed men differ from wicked men because of how they think this is represented by your choice of what counselors you use they differ from wicked men because of how they behave and they also differ from wicked men because of whom to whom they belong. And that's represented by our relationship with Jesus. There's one more way to look at this verse. It represents a progression of sin. One scholar put it this way, the great lesson to be learned from the whole is sin is progressive. One evil propensity or act leads to another. He who acts by bad counsel may soon do evil deeds and he who abandons himself to evil doings may end his life in total apostasy from God. In other words, when you listen to foolish counsel, you are prone to act foolishly, followed by treating others foolishly, followed by ultimately turning away. Sin causes more sin. How easy is it for you to commit a sin and then the next day turn around and do it again? 
And then the next day, do it again and again and again. It's really easy for me, I know. Because as soon as I start down that road, I'm on that path of sinners. I like living that way. That's how we are. That's, that's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to be changed from the inside out. We can't do it on our own. So it's one downward spiral after another. You just keep going and going and going into the muck and the mire. But thanks be to God, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But I will say that it's better to choose wise counsel, stand in the way of righteousness, and praise God with your words and deeds, rather than the previous things that we mentioned. So now that we know what the blessed man does not do, let's take a closer look at what he does. The blessed man finds delight in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. Note that by using law here, the psalmist is not only referring to the first five books of the Bible, he's referring to the whole of Scripture, all of it. Oftentimes when we hear the, word, the words the law, when we read the Scriptures, talking about the first five books, here he's talking about the whole counsel of God's Word. So the blessed man finds delight in the whole Bible. Note that the psalmist is not focused on the negative aspects of the law. When you hear about the law, you often think, well, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, right? This is what I can do, this is what I can't do. He's focused on the positive life-giving aspects of the law. He's focused on the, his love for God. He loves to seek God and honor God's commandments. Why? Because he's a new man. Or woman. I'm saying man because it's quicker. Sorry. So, he's a new creation in Christ. So he loves to seek God and honor God's commandments. He wants to serve God to the best of his abilities and grow closer to God with every passing day. Have you ever asked yourself, or even God, why you don't feel close to him? I know a lot of people who struggle with this idea that, that God just isn't close. And they wonder what they're doing wrong that's causing that to be the issue. Why is God not close? Have you ever felt discouraged because it seemed as if you couldn't see God or feel his presence? So many people struggle with this. If so, the psalmist gives us clear direction on how to know God on a deeper level. We experience more of who God is by meditating on his word. And how often should we meditate on scripture? What's it say? Day and night. When you see the words day and night in Scripture, do you know what that encompasses? It encompasses the whole day. We are supposed to be constantly having our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's not a, oh, I got my five minutes in this morning, reading my Bible app, I'm good to go now for the rest of the day, and put it away. No. We read that passage, and then guess what we do? We meditate on it all day long. We focus on it. We let it come to the surface over and over and over and over. So that by the Word, the Spirit takes the Word and then He transforms. Okay? 
He doesn't just transform just because we sit there and say, Oh, God, here we go. Make me new. No, he makes you new by renewing your mind. How does he renew your mind? By the Word of God. It all ties together. It's not just, you know, Hey, God, make this happen. I'll be back later. And then it changes? No, you have to put feet to your prayers. You have to put your faith in action. I meditate on Scripture because I delight in it. Let me say that again. I meditate on Scripture because I delight in it. I love to get new revelation from this. I don't wait for the James Earl Jones voice to come and speak to me. Phil, this is what you should do right now. That was a terrible James Earl Jones, but my wife and I joke that that's what God would sound like. He'd sound like James Earl Jones, you know, Darth Vader, you know, whatever. <laughs> but I don't wait for that. I read the Word of God, I delight in the Word of God, and God speaks to me through His Word. And He takes that and He makes me a new man. So, so vital. I could preach about the Word of God. Like We could go to Psalm 119 and spend three years just in Psalm 119 because it's all about the Word. Do you realize that? That's how important the Word of God is in our lives. Today's January 2nd. I said before, we started our Bible plan for the year yesterday. So if you want to join in, you don't have to wait. You don't have to feel like you've lost out. Instead of taking 10 minutes today, you can take 20. And you can be right caught up with everybody else. Uh, and if you need to get the thing, just let me know. I'll, I'll text it to you. It takes me three seconds. Just pop into the app and text you the information, and we'll be in the group together. Now, before you stone me for encouraging you to read the whole Bible in one year, because I, like I said before, I know it can be intimidating, and people think it's silly, and they don't understand the point of it. So don't stone me. Put your stones down. If you brought them in from outside, put them away. I don't, I don't deserve it. Not right now, anyway. <laughs> I'm trying to get you in the Word on a regular basis. I'm trying to help you and encourage you to grow in the Word of God, to want to know God more, to want to be transformed by God. An authentic follower of Christ wants God to change their heart. Someone who is truly made new in Christ wants to be a new person. You long to be more godly, to be a different person. Those that aren't authentic followers of Christ think I'm speaking rubbish right now. And if that's you, I pray God would just come and save you now. Because I hate to say it, but that's just how the Bible tells it. You should want to be transformed regularly, more and more each day, into the image of of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm so grateful to God for the passion He's given me for His Word. I delight in it. And do you want to know what someone delights in? It's pretty easy to figure out. Just look at their calendar. Look at what they prioritize in their life. What do they spend the most time doing? Whatever that person delights in, they'll spend the most time doing. If you spend most of your hours cooking because you like cooking, you delight in cooking. 
If you spend the most time playing video games, you delight in video games. If you spend the most time with your spouse, you delight in your spouse. And if you spend most of your time scrolling, guess what you delight in? Scrolling on your phone. The only reason I have that up here is because I've got Facebook open so people can, so I can share it. So I have Facebook. I'm going to scroll right now. That's what I delight in. Just kidding. <laughs> so, what do you delight in? Now, I don't have a sufficient amount of time to unpack the, this point, but let me give you a quick overview of what it means to meditate biblically. First, let me tell you what meditation is not. Meditation, biblically, is not clearing your mind. Let me say that again. Biblical meditation is not clearing your mind. That is an Eastern religion practice that actually opens yourself up to any type of wave of evil doctrine. That gives your mind the opportunity to just go where he wants to go. Because what I just say about your heart, your heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? So if you clear your mind to let whatever wants to come in, come in, guess what? All kinds of things are going to come in. Biblical meditation has nothing to do with clearing your mind. You know what biblical meditation is? It's where I pick this book up and I read Psalm chapter 1 and I start to break down, okay, what does it mean to be blessed? What does a blessed man not do? What does the blessed man do? How often does he do it? And I start to focus on what the words actually say. And I spend time thinking about those words. I fill my mind with the word of God. And then I meditate on the word of God. I focus on what it says. I dig deeper into what it says. That's biblical meditation. That's what the psalmist is telling you to do. It's not clear your mind. It's fill your mind. Fill your mind with the Word of God so that it can change you. It can make you into the person God's calling you to be. Can I get off my soapbox now? Step right off. The type of meditation that you hear from Eastern religion is dangerous. Biblical meditation is praiseworthy. It makes it it makes change the change you want to have in your life as a follower of Christ. So first, read a passage, ponder what you read, pray for wisdom and understanding, do a word study on each word, sentence, paragraph, break down what each word is actually saying, connect the dots of context in the passage, ask the Holy Spirit to help you make application from the text that you're meditating on. Finally, how often should you meditate on the law? How, how much? Day and night, all the time. I know that sounds harsh. Like some people think, oh, who reads their Bible all day? I didn't say you had to read your Bible all day. I said you take a passage of Scripture, you read that passage of Scripture, and then you focus on it day and night. It doesn't have to be the whole Bible. Just take a piece and focus on it. Spend time seeking God about what the Word is trying to tell you and what it's trying to do in your life. You should constantly be meditating on the law. Read something in the morning. Do a Bible plan. It's good to read the Bible in its entirety, but as you go along, meditate on a small portion of what you read in the morning. You know, so we're, we're in Genesis. We've made it through 24 chapters in a year. 
We were hoping to make it through all 50 in 52 weeks. Not even close. We didn't even make it halfway. But the point is, so I do the Bible app, right? That takes 10 minutes a day, whatever. And I, I, I share and, and hope that people will comment so that we can talk about it and we can grow in it. But, but I tell you what, I have to dissect Genesis every week. Like, I mean, I'm in Genesis till I'm blue in the face because I want to make sure that I'm rightly dividing the word to the people that I'm teaching, that I'm leading. I don't want to teach something fallible. I don't want to teach something wrong. I want to teach what the Word of God says, right? Well, I have to meditate on it. That's what I do. Nathan's going to be able to do that on Sundays every week from now on, right, buddy? Everybody, i, I got to say this. I shouldn't do this. I don't want to put you on blast. But he made regular at the post office, which means the man does not have to work on Sundays anymore, and I am so excited. So praise God for that. I know, I know that that means nothing to anybody else, but to him and I, he gets it. I, I'm so happy that you made it. So praise God that that's over with for you. I know Chris is happy. You get to see her husband every now and again. <laughs> All right. <sighs> okay. For example, yesterday we read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, along with a chapter of Matthew, a chapter of Psalms, which is the one we're studying today and the chapter of Proverbs. But to provoke meditation, I ask one question of the group to help them focus on one small portion. I plan to do this every day. If we're going to walk in righteousness in the way of the blessed man, we must delight in the law of God and meditate on his word day and night. As the psalmist moves on, he uses the text, uses the next three verses to show us the stark contrast between the godly man and the ungodly man. The blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he pro whatever he does prospers. Why is the blessed man like a tree planted by streams of water? What does that even mean? Well, I'm glad you asked me. I'm going to tell you. What happens to a tree in a dry, hot climate? What happens to it? It withers and dies. Thanks, Jim. What does water bring to a tree? Life! Man, we're on a roll here. That's why there's going to be trees flowing next to the river of flowing water from, from the throne in Revelation. There's going to be trees planted by the stream, and guess what? They're going to have life. So water brings us life. and brings nourishment. The text says that the, plant, the, plant, the tree that's planted by streams of water bear fruit, and its leaves do not wither. This tree will prosper. How do we define prosperity as Christians? Man, I love to get on this soapbox. I'm not going to stay on it very long, but just for a minute. Well, we don't define prosperity by how much money we get, right? We don't define prosperity by how healthy and wealthy we are. That's not how the Christian defines prosperity. Prosperity to an authentic believer should be marked by loving, authentic service to others. That's prosperity. Did you know that? How does it feel when you help somebody else? Not trying to puff yourself up, but how does it feel? It feels good, right? You feel like you've done something worthy of walking in the presence of Jesus Christ when you help somebody else. It's, it's a good feeling. Why? Because it's godly. It's what we should do. We're supposed to lay down our life for our friends. That's what Jesus did. That's biblical prosperity. God blesses me to bless others. 
say it again. God blesses me to bless others. I'm not supposed to keep it to myself. I don't take it with a, and close my hands. I keep my hands open so that it will flow out. That's the way we should do it. It doesn't necessarily mean financially, but it can mean that. If God gives you wealth, what do you do with it? Do you hoard it or share it? I heard somebody say, share it, right? Yes, it's not for you. It's to bless others. You know, as a, as a believer in Christ, you should, you should want to take everything you've got and make it make someone else better. You know, if you have money and somebody's in need, what should you do? You give it to them. You don't just pray and say, I hope they do well. I think Jesus said something about that somewhere in Scripture. I'm just saying. You don't just keep what you've got. You make a difference. Use it to bless others. When we abide in Christ, we'll all prosper. We will prosper by knowing that we are held in God's hands and He loves us unconditionally. He gives us gifts to bless others. However, the wicked man is like chaff that the wind blows away. How are we doing on time? Okay, got a couple minutes. The wicked man is like chaff that the wind blows away. Chaff is the stuff that grows up with the wheat and surrounds it. And you know what they have to do? They take the wheat and they throw it up in the air. And guess what happens to the chaff? It blows away because it's useless. Right? And the wheat's left over. But it grows up together so you can't tell until it's full grown. You don't know which is which. Okay? So the wicked man looks like, on, on a lot of occasions, looks just like the righteous man until the harvest comes and then they'll be separated so for us we're trying to share the gospel you don't know who you're sharing with they might say they're a Christian they might say they're not if they say they're not you know you need to witness to them more and more but even if they say they are you still need to give them the gospel why because can you know if they're saved or not absolutely not you have no idea what their heart is with Jesus nothing you have no way of knowing you share anyway that's why we need to we need to share with what we seem to be unjust and what seems to be just everybody needs the gospel every day the gospel is what changes our lives like chaff the wicked man is useless in God's kingdom therefore the future of the wicked is very grim the ungodly will not stand in the judgment because they have no weight they will be found lacking on the day of judgment. Just as it was said of King Belshazzar in the book of Daniel, it says, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. So it will be for all of those who are found guilty apart from Christ on the day of judgment. No works of the unrighteous will be able to help them on the day of judgment. Do you know that bad people do good things? You know that's possible? I know a lot of unbelievers who are, are really kind people. But they'll tell you they don't know Jesus. They'll be honest. They'll tell you. But they're really nice people who seemingly love you. But just because they do seemingly right things doesn't make them righteous. Their works are like filthy rags. And they'll be burned up in the judgment. 
Wicked sinners cannot stand next to the righteous on the day of judgment. One group will stand on the left, the other group on the right. The righteous group will receive eternal life with God in heaven, while the other group will be condemned to everlasting torment in hell. In conclusion, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This means that God is always watching over his people. Isn't that an awesome concept? That if you know, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, God is on your side. He's there to change your life from the inside out. To make you a new man, a new woman in Christ. To make you a new creation. He's on your side because you're on his. He, we love him because he first loved us. And who are his people? The true followers of Christ. How do we know who they are? What is the only way of even thinking that a person is in Jesus? We know them by their fruit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. That's how we know that a person is a follower of Christ. It's the only thing we can base it on. So ask yourself this question. What do my life choices reflect about my relationship with Christ? What do my life choices reflect about my relationship with Jesus? Do I pray and study my Bible regularly? Do I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Do I actually love God? When I sin against God, do I seek forgiveness and restoration? Do I mourn over my sinfulness? When's the last time you fell to your knees in mourning over your own sin? If you're unable to answer these questions positively, take a moment and check your heart. Let me say it again. Sometimes I told Barb this morning I, I wasn't gonna I was wasn't gonna be too harsh, but take a minute and check your heart if you can't answer positively to those questions. Because you know what? God's spirit testifies to my spirit that I'm a child of God. And when I sin, I mourn. When I know that I messed up, I mourn. I need God's forgiveness and grace in my life. Even as a believer, every moment of every day, I need his grace and his love to pour over me. I need the blood of Christ to cleanse me over and over and over. And I would say to you, every one of you need it just as much as I do. We all need to be cleansed by the righteousness of Christ. His blood has to cover our sins. And if we're faith, if we confess our sins, it says, I said it before, God is faithful and just, and He will purify us from all unrighteousness. Test and see if you are truly in the faith. And ask God to give you peace about your relationship with Him. One of my favorite Bible passages, everybody knows that my favorite verse in the Bible is Romans 1.16. If you know me at all, you know that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God and the salvation. But one of my favorite verses, one of my favorite passages is reminded of my son's birthday because his name is Philip and it's in Philippians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. His birthday is April 6th. It's really easy to remember Philip 4, 6. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. The Lord knows your heart, and if you are truly made new in Christ, God is transforming that heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Once more in contrast, the way of the wicked will perish. The way of wicked, the way of the wicked is a broad and wide road. There are many, many, many people on that road. The way of the righteous is narrow and few will find it. So I ask you today in closing this one question. What road are you on right now? Let's bow our heads together. Father, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you, you made a way where we are not worthy. We are not even we're just filthy. But God, your blood cleanses us of that filthiness. You have made a way by the power of the cross at Calvary. And Father, as we move into this new year, I pray that we would submit our lives to you, that we would surrender. That Lord, if we already know you, God, we would humble ourselves, that you would humble us and that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds. That, Father, you would give us a passion and desire for your word to know you more. That, Father, you would teach us to pray. That we would seek your face every moment of every day. And, Father, I pray that as we do seek you, you then use us to reach others that are lost and dying. Father, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would just work on change minds. Help us to see the falling of our ways. Help us to see our wicked hearts and let you make them new. God, we don't want to be hard-hearted. Harden us no more and set us free from the bondage of sin. Help us to be the men and women you've called us to be. God, be glorified by your salvation in each of us. Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you that you've made a way. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we come to you in humble adoration and obedience. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.